Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We are still failing on the mental health side. And until we can jump that hurdle... To expect that we're going to be able to do this in the setting of cancer is perhaps unrealistic. From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. Man, have I got an incredibly amazing show for you guys today. You know, just when I thought I was the only 20-something with cancer in the world adrift in the 1990s with, you know, nary a support group or a peer cancer body, along came an introduction to one Dr. Julia Rowland. Now, there are luminaries, and then there are luminaries of cancer research, advocacy, and survivorship, so it cannot be understated how seminal she has been against the narrative backdrop of the past 50 years. Widely recognized as a national and international scholar and foremost leader in the psychosocial aspects of cancer care and specifically cancer survivorship, she's been at this since the mid-1970s. I'm talking Nixon's War on Cancer 1970s. You know, without her seminal work and leadership across those decades, today's narrative on quality of life, fertility rights, navigation, decision-making, mental health, they might not exist in today's current form. As the first director of the newly christened in 1996 Office of Cancer Survivorship for the Division of Cancer Control and Population Science at the NCI, that's the National Cancer Institute, she's been working on behalf of millions of patients and survivors to improve our lives. Julie has been a personal friend and professional mentor of mine for over 16 years, and I am just so grateful and humbled to welcome her to this episode of Out of Patience. Enjoy the show. Howdy, friends. It's Matt. I'm here today with one of my absolute, utter, most inspirational mentors of my entire career, a luminary in the annals of cancer advocacy and survivorship research, Dr. Julia Rowland. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Matt, it's such a joy to be with you here in your virtual kitchen table setting and to be able to have the opportunity to talk to you about the worlds we've been traveling in, in this arena that we call cancer survivorship. So looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. And just for the listeners, I met Julia probably in the early pre-ish stupid cancer world of the mid-2000s when you were helming the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute around the same time that I met our mutual colleague, the late Ellen Stovall, who was the executive director and CEO of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. Lots of acronyms, but man, has it been a hell of a journey. And you've been at this 
way longer than I have. It's true. I When I look back over my career, I'm sort of taken aback because I actually stumbled into this area of work back in the 70s, about, about five years after Nixon declared war on cancer in 1971 and passed the Cancer Act that really galvanized not just the research community, but ultimately all the kind of work that we've been engaged in now really made that possible by lighting a fire under the scientific community to say, we got to figure out what these diseases are we call cancer and do something to halt them, cure them, control them. Many of my listeners are aware of The Emperor of All Maladies and the TV adaptation of it on PBS, Sidney Farber's work in pediatrics in the 60s. But the idea that we didn't yet know maybe that all this stuff was killing people that were trying to save them. And yet here we are when like Connie Mack did his thing with the NCI funding and got the Warren Cancer Act taken care of. Was that the final gestalt moment about, wait, these are people too? You know, that's a great question. And I wish I had a simple answer to it. Certainly the, the National Cancer Act really was about the fact that we were, were not winning the quote unquote war on cancer. Lamentable language, I think a lot of us would agree, but we had these diseases that we just, where we just weren't making progress. Rethink about how we approach them. And it's true, the real breakthroughs in medical treatment came in pediatrics. So our pediatric survivors have really been the vanguard, if you will, of the survivorship movement. Because in particular, in the late 60s, when they began to figure out how to treat children diagnosed with leukemia, acute lymphocytic leukemia, and to control it and essentially cure them of that disease, that was huge. Because prior to that, almost uniformly, all of those children would die of their disease, even though lots of really aggressive treatment was being thrown at them. So that was kind of the first, you know, when I think about the sort of history timeline breakthrough moment when we realized we could actually control this disease in children. So that was like quality of life. Like, can you, like, when was that first even conceived of in the narrative of medicine? It's not even quality of life yet, Matt, because first they had to be able to control the disease. So you could argue that in 1971, if you looked at the cancer statistics, fewer than half of people diagnosed would actually be alive in five years. So the focus wasn't on helping you live with your cancer, it's helping you die from your cancer in part the stimulus behind the Cancer Act. We had to change that picture. But once they started having children who would actually present with no evidence of disease, that they control the disease, they began then to follow those children longer. And as they did, they realized that these children were paying a human cost of their cure. They were finding they were having difficulties in school. Their stature was different than how tall they were and how they grew and developed was different than their siblings who didn't have cancer, weren't treated for cancer. And it was in that moment when they realized, oh gosh, we have curative treatments, but they're so aggressive, they're causing these children to have other issues, other health issues. I would say that was the moment that kind of sparked the aha and where the pediatric community began to say, focus on cure is not enough. We have to be looking at the care and the outcomes afterwards. So can we modify these treatments to make them less toxic? And that's exactly what they did in leukemia. 
And you couldn't have potentially even forecast that that, that that would be an outcome. Initially, it was like, let's just get them to not die. And then, oh, my God, this also is an end result of them not dying. Absolutely. They were living long enough to develop all the late effects that we knew were problematic with the treatments. We know radiation can cause cancer. We know that some chemotherapies can cause cancer and other kinds of conditions. And yet the idea was if we can cure you, if we can get you to cure, we'll worry about that later. Well, aha, they arrived at the cure moment and they realized, oh, now, wait a minute, they're our costs attendant to this. And now we need to focus on that. And that happened a lot faster in pediatric oncology than it really has in adult or young adult cancers even. Right. And I can only assume that's just the level of natural human empathy for children going through an illness. And there's such rare diseases. So that population in some ways is very unique. These are very rare conditions in children. And that community came together right away and said, we have to treat as a community. We can't have people being treated in different places. So if you are a child or your family and have a child who's diagnosed with cancer, they are treated in big specialty centers. And all of those cancer specialists get together and participate in clinical trials. So you contrast that with the adult world where people might be treated in communities. We have very low rates of participation in clinical trial. The picture is very different in pediatric oncology because of the rareness. And one consequence of that, the benefit is that we found out how treatments work a lot faster in children than we have in adults. So we go from this focus on, you know, cure is now not enough yeah, you know, I, I look at the word survivorship almost like etym etymologically. I'm making that word up. I, th I think you know what I mean. And mm -hmm. you look at like stewardship and mentorship. Was it just like the neologism, like survivorship? There is a history to it. I mean, the history that I grew up embracing is, and it goes right back to the founding of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship back in 1986. So almost 35 years ago when that group of 24 individuals gathered in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and created this organization that we now call the National Coalition, or NCCS for short. And at that time, 1986, we'll go back to those cancer stats, more than 50%, more like 60%, if not more, of individuals who were diagnosed with cancer would be alive in five years. However, in 1986, the, the definition of a survivor was someone who was still alive no evidence of disease, five years after diagnosis. It was a very medical clinical definition. And what this group of you know, cancer survivors themselves and their healthcare providers and individuals who had programs for them said, well, well wait, wait a minute, you can't wait five years, put your life on hold and make sure you're gonna be here and then resume living. That makes no sense whatsoever. We need to be thinking about what we're gonna return to after the treatment course at the time of treatment. So they decided we needed to redefine what it meant to be a survivor and propose the definition that individuals could call themselves, refer to themselves as survivors from the moment of diagnosis and for the balance of life. Three, three important messages here, however. One, they never meant it to be a label. Rather, two, they wanted it to be language that gave hope to individuals who were diagnosed, that there was rich, full, meaningful life to be had after cancer. But the most important thing they wanted to do with that definition was change how care was delivered, change the philosophy of care, how we went about thinking of people. Considering them survivors from the moment of diagnosis means I'm going to think about 
Are you a young adult? Do you want to have children later? What do I need to do to ensure that that's the possibility for you if I have those options? If you are a super athlete and you want to protect your lungs so that you can ride a bicycle, I want to be thinking about that. It's those decisions have to be made up front before treatment exposure. Hence that definition of survivor from day one. So I think we kind of skipped a decade between the mid 70s and the mid 80s. What type of progress, if all at all, was happening before the original scrappy Margaret Mead rabble rousers of cancer got together and did this? Sidebar is also that they hated being called victims. That was also part of the language. Yes. Absolutely. And with that, you know, calling yourself a survivor, I should say there were four points that the coalition wanted to make. And first was to get rid of that word victim. You are not a victim. You have a role in this. You have contributions to make your needs, purpose, you know, desires, preferences need to be part of that whole decision making process. You're absolutely right. And in the 80s, there was a lot of work. A lot of us were doing work on trying to come up with ways to measure outcomes, to say, how do I even evaluate what it's been like for someone to go through a cancer treatment? Starting by using, limited by the choices available, we use a lot of psychiatric measures to look at people, which of course doesn't really apply. It's not a psychiatric population, but that's where we started but it spawned a lot of development of measures unique to assessing the cancer experience. And that was already happening in the 1980s. Right. And then we moved from the 80s into the 90s. And I think that's where survivorship really ignited a conversation specifically in the breast cancer community. At what point did it get to a maybe a gestalt where you could identify how do you actually measure this? Hmm. I think it was evolving all along because, as I said, there were many of us who were doing quality of life studies in the 80s and 90s. The biggest population of research was really in the breast cancer arena for a variety of reasons. I mean, this is a disease that affects individuals from adolescence up until, you know, your centenarian. It affects a body part with great meaning to women and to to sort of cultural norms, uh, social norms. It is one where we use all the treatment modalities. It is one where genes have a role and play a role. Health behaviors we knew had a, had a role in here. So it's a, it's a unique paradigm. And women were willing to talk to researchers, to sit down and answer questionnaires and provide information on their experience. They're very vocal very sharing community. And that really opened the floodgates to doing research on quality of life outcomes. I was originally diagnosed in December of 1995. And when I first had my surgery and I went to see my neuro-oncologist, they were still using the five-year survivor mm -hmm. narrative. I was not going to be a cancer survivor until I lived until January of 2001. Is there a bit of attrition or communications, or did this have to just take its time to become narrative in the ether of medical speak? I think the latter, Matt, absolutely. It, it's been slow on uptake. And of course, along with it has come this kind of real reservation about calling anybody cured. So, I mean, the sort of more cynical side of that is to say, well, you're cured of your cancer when you die of something else. Which, of course, in the cancer world, uh, increasing numbers of individuals, that will actually be true. So more breast cancer survivors will die of non-breast cancer causes. 
colorectal, similar, prostate, probably similar also. So a lot of the major cancers are not fatal in the same way they were even in, back in the 90s. And in fact, breast cancer is a really interesting disease, not only because it's so common, so it's a very prevalent cancer, but because there's been such good advocacy. So women have risen up and said, this is a problem. One in eight women developed this. That's a travesty. The government needs to be putting money into it. They lobbied hard enough. Congress, Congress turned around, tapped the DOD, was going to take the money from the Department of Defense. And the Department of Defense said, no, no, no. Don't take our, anything out of our budget. We'll become experts in breast cancer. And by golly, that's what they did. And for a while, I, interesting sort of public fact, they were one of the major funders of breast cancer research across the country um, because of advocacy. Women standing up and saying, we need to know more about this and we need to know what outcomes to expect and what happens after this disease is over. Yeah, as I learn more and more about the rabbit hole you know, pre-mat. I'm going to just make it you know, like when I first happened to accidentally join the cancer world in the mid-90s. It's astonishing of the snowball effect that it had when patients were willing to share their stories. They were able to quantify that, encourage more patients. And this narrative that I had a voice and I wasn't just this person in a cave alone was... It, it can't be understated enough that that is really what transformed a national narrative from victims and 10 people to millions of people affected by this. And my question to all of this is around the early emergence of Livestrong, which was my first experience into, I guess, maybe cancer lifestyle per se, but I never heard the word psychosocial. They used the word practical. The practical crap you have to deal with when you get sick because no one asks to get sick. Balancing the research jargon with the consumer jargon, do you feel that it all just made sense coming together? Absolutely. And, you know, no matter what people's feelings are about Lance Armstrong himself, that organization was galvanizing and brought enormous attention and continues to fund really innovative projects. Um, and Lance himself, as I sort of alluded to, unnamed before, in some ways that poster child of making sure that you have a conversation with your physicians about what kind of treatment to receive before you undergo it. Because had he received the full regimen of the then recommended treatment for his advanced testicular cancer, his lungs would have been compromised very likely and he would not have been able to get back on a bike. But a fan encouraged him to go to the group in Indiana that actually developed the successful treatment for testicular cancer, and they modified his regimen to protect his lungs, his pulmonary capacity. And you could argue the rest is history. So I think that advocacy, and I think it's a really kind of, a, to me, fascinating point, Matt, because it's only very slowly that other countries have public figures that are standing up and talking about their cancer experience. We've had a phenomenal experience of that in this country, really bringing cancer out of the closet into the conversation. So it's not just the big C. We talk about cancer. You look at the obituaries in big newspapers today, people actually die of cancer. Well, they didn't back in the 1970s or didn't in, in parentheses because we didn't talk about the illness. But now when you have very public figures saying, yes, I've had this disease and are still 
leading active lives, it's made it a different conversation. It's made it one that we want to attend to. How do you live that full life with, through, and beyond cancer? Back with our guest after the break. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So that pivots us into a conversation about sort of cancer culture. And you've been witnessing this for a very long time. And I do credit Livestrong for being this social galvanizer, maybe not normalizing cancer, but maybe giving society permission to talk about it. Because we start to think about how cancer was portrayed in film and television, you know, the Deborah Winger story in terms of endearment, to now your point public figures, celebrities coming out, Sheryl Crow, you know, uh, uh, Kylie Minogue. These were the figures in pop culture that were just saying, me too, this is about us. Where have you seen, again, with your Office of Cancer Survivorship hat on, how does societal change help the government better understand what to do next? And that is kind of a tip to the IOM report that we can talk about. Right. So great point. And I think the bottom line, having been down to Congress and testified before Congress, they don't really want to listen to the talking heads like me. They want to hear the story from the mouth of the individual who's been through the experience. So there's nothing more potent than someone who's lived that goes down and said, let me tell you what it was like and what I needed for my care and what you need to do to make sure that other people have these resources and this care available to them. I think that's a very important message for all of your listeners is that individuals have a voice and it's an important voice and change rarely occurs without advocacy. So advocacy has played 
an enormous role in changing the culture. And if we get to the Institute of Medicine report, of course, Lance Armstrong was invited to sit on the president's cancer panel. The president's cancer panel is a three-person committee that was mandated way back in 1971. You know, we're going to celebrate next year the 50th anniversary of that act, the 50th. But he was invited to be on the president's cancer panel. And in that role in 2004, the panel took a look at and decided that they were going to focus on survivorship. And they did a report that came out talking about here are the long-term and late effects we need to be doing something about, and here's an agenda for the research world. And in the wake of that, the Institute of Medicine then decided to do a report, and they released their first one actually came before the President's Cancer Panel. They did one on pediatrics in 2002, and then they did another one in 2006 called From Cancer Patient to Cancer Survivor, Lost in Transition, which has been an incredibly seminal report setting the stage for how do we focus on quality of life outcomes for individuals who are living long-term with this history. I also think it's important to recognize that at that time, screenings started to be available. Uh, I remember Katie Couric getting a colonoscopy on TV or something, and then boom, everyone's getting colon cancer screenings. Mammograms improved. They changed the guidelines. So we're looking at, to your point, like IOM's like, all these people are going to be diagnosed now, hopefully earlier stage, and they're not going to die. What do we do with them as a society? So yeah, there were three reports. There was the loss in transition, caring for the whole patient, and Again, my inner geek, I think I read this like the day it came out, the National Action Plan for Cancer Survivorship. These are right. three seminal documents that are historic in nature. Yeah, and the, the National Academies now, which of course changed its name, it's the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, as opposed to the Institute of Medicine, uh, just two weeks ago had another meeting on survivorship looking at the late consequences of treatment in individuals to say, where are we with that? So it's not, it hasn't gone from the public eye. We're going to see another sort of look like a white paper or some kind of report that comes out of that. But I think it's going to say yet again, we have work still to be doing here. I mean, can you point to anyone like non-1971, non-1986, non-Livestrong? Let's pick the last maybe 15 years, where there has been another seminal sea change in appreciating the quality of life. I think Ellen Stoffel used to say, quality of life is tantamount to quality of care. What does that mean to the average person in 2020 getting sick as far as access, navigation, and disparity? Yeah, great, great points. Absolutely. And, you know, Ellen, beloved friend and colleague, always wondered, why are we raising money race for the cure? What about race for the care? She was adamant about that, that you need not just length of survival, but you need a quality of that survival as a focus. And that's really harkens back to those early lessons learned in pediatric oncology. Yeah, we can get kids to survive their treatment, but to what? When we see so many of them struggling in school, not 
fitting in with their peers, having enormous difficulties, and having a burden of, of complications later that we now to be, need to be focused on. It's not enough to look at just curing people. We need to be looking at the quality of life of those individuals. So yes, I would agree, Matt, that that's really come to the fore. I think we think a lot about the challenges. There are several challenges. One is who's responsible for that? In other words, in the cancer world, that's a big question. So if you go through your cancer treatment, is your oncology team then responsible for that? Does that need to be handed back to primary care? And if so, how do we help those, in, those practitioners know what to deliver for people who have cancer in their practice? We are thinking about it a lot more. We're still challenged with it. Yes, they're credentialing recommendations for patient navigation, for survivorship care plans, which actually was a recommendation out of that Institute of Medicine report in 2006, and also the President's Cancer Panel report in 2004, which some people forget about. But how to, how to actually do that? A lot of the research is now focusing on you know, how do we best deliver care to the growing population of people who are going to be living long-term with a cancer history? How do we do that? Who should do it? You know, I've always wanted to know the answer to this question. I, I can't believe I've never really asked it. But at what point in the conversation across the last 40 or 50 years of survivorship were caregivers or family members brought into the conversation? <laughs> oh, my favorite topic. Thank you so much for asking. As a, as a, as a cancer caregiver myself, it's, it's dear to my heart. I run a small support group for cancer caregivers. They are a very neglected population. And yet we know, we know they are critical to survivors' outcomes, that they play a very important role for most individuals. They're most often family, but not exclusively. And we have historically ignored them. But I would say in the last, I don't know, 10 years now, maybe, we're increasing our attention to this population. There is a different CARES Act, not the CARES Act people are talking about today with regard to COVID-related things. There's a CARES Act that came out from Congress that encouraged all medical facilities who were treating patients to uh, identify when a patient came into their facility who the caregiver was uh, engaged with that person's care. And when the patient was discharged from that setting, that individual was supposed to be informed about what's the care to be delivered and any training needed to do that provided and also to see if that individual is going to be able to do those tasks. So I, I think this is a big area, a growing area of interest, and still underappreciated. Yeah, I'm going to absolutely agree with you on that. And I think that's also ties into another thing I wanted to bring up, which is that, you know, today the narrative on mental health, you know, not air quotes, is real. And it's like, how do we not talk about this in the past? But you think about it, survivorship and the, the word practical or, or pragmatic issues you face that Livestrong had on their manifesto were really about how do you kind of endure this with a level of sanity and dignity when you're stuck without oars in the middle of the ocean, right? This is all about mental health pretty much at the top of the circus tent. Well, so, so I'm going to turn this back to you. So Matt, in your own experience, do you feel that when you were being treated that your mental health was attended to? Well, again, it was the 90s with MC Hammer Pants and the 90s kind of sucked in general. So no, <laughs> under no circumstances was there even the remotest of Matt's a person through the, you know, six months or so in my treatment and even the ensuing several years. It wasn't until I discovered 
honestly live strong. And this whole young adult cancer universe that I was like, how was I the only person in the world diagnosed in their 20s until I wasn't? And then meeting this tribe was the mental health therapy I needed to not feel alone, not feel judged, and be normalized that all the crap I was dealing with as a late effect was perfectly tolerable because other people knew what that was like. That was what I needed. I didn't know I needed it. It kind of stumbled upon me. But yeah, today I would hope that you know, community cancer centers may not have the social worker or the navigator or the clinical care coordinator or the nurse navigator. You know, where are we now in terms of you work for an organization called the Smith Center, which my origin story was the first stupid cancer patient chapter was in D.C. with Shanti Nars, who works at the Smith Center. You know, the idea that these groups have to exist, need to exist, must exist. They fill the gap that I wish that I had in the in the 90s. Yeah, so you're touching upon Smith Center where I currently work and that was as you said founded in 1996, so we're going to be celebrating our 25th next year. And very visionary, it was a collaborative effort the woman was really Michael Lerner who is affiliated with Commonweal out in Bolinas, California, very visionary individual and Barbara Smith Coleman who really endowed the center so we continue uh, functioning, is focused on the integrative piece. As you say, the, the psychosocial mental piece, providing pretty much free for anybody who wants to avail themselves of these services of things like yoga and stress management, nutrition, support groups, healing circles, retreats, uh, educational seminars, arts and creativity. And we have a chef's grade kitchen built into our premises. We also have an art gallery that's part of our our site, which is at the location that was Barbara Smith Coleman's art studio. She was herself an artist. Uh, Just for your listeners, all of that right now, because of COVID, everything we do is actually online. So smithcenter.org, if you want art or yoga or energy balance, all those things are free. They're online. Just So the availability, ironically, with COVID of these kinds of programs, Matt, has taken off because we've had to think about how to get around the fact of we need to physically distance. We can't be convened at this moment in time. But I would have to say, not to be a Debbie Downer, but as a psychologist and a clinician, I have to say we are still failing on the mental health side. And it's not just cancer. It's, it's our country still doesn't acknowledge that mental illness is probably as important as a physical illness, and it is a physical illness in many ways, and needs to be treated on a par with that. And until we can jump that hurdle, to expect that we're going to be able to do this in the setting of cancer is perhaps unrealistic. So we need to take a step back and take a bigger look at this. We know that our mental health is very important for our well-being, our social health is really important for our well-being. And so finding ways to remain healthy, facing no matter what your crisis, and right now for a lot, it's cancer and COVID. So I think we have work to do there. We really do, Matt. And I think organizations like, you know, Stupid Cancer are so vital for people to have available to them to get through these kinds of experiences. I feel like we are leaving this episode with a cliffhanger and that this episode of the History of Cancer Survivorship was brought to you by, right? 
I can't thank you enough for coming on the show because there's so much more to tell. And I'm going to just drop this really quickly to see what Easter eggs my listeners will understand. We are going to be producing a documentary next year about the history of cancer survivorship. Julie will be one of our stars on the series. But again, like just to out-credential you, you, you can't be out-credentialed. There's so much underneath your name. But, you know, for, for purposes of LinkedIn, perhaps, you are the senior strategic advisor at the Smith Center, board member of the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, former director of the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute, scholar, luminary, mentor, and friend. Thank you so much. Stay well and more to come. Matt, thank you. Really a privilege to be with you today. And likewise. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.